0: Let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for today. You've given us another day, um, another opportunity to worship you, to grow in you, to be edified by you. And we come here, Lord, um, really seeking an encounter from you, from your word. And so I just pray that you would guide everything today, Uh, Sunday school, uh, the main service that follows, um, having some special worship uh, today, so I pray that you'll be with that. And, you know, all the kids, classes that are meeting as I speak, um, church meetings going on this evening at different levels, I just pray that everything will be done in a way that's glorifying to you. And to prepare us, Lord, for that ministry that you do, which is the ministry of illumination, where you take the deep things of God and make them understandable to us, which is something a human teacher cannot do, but only the Holy Spirit can do. We're going to prepare for that ministry by taking a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you, if need be, not to restore our position, but to restore broken fellowship if we've sinned against you in any way. We remain, Lord, thankful for the comprehensive provision you've given to us. Um, not only giving us right standing before you through Jesus, but also when need be, uh, you've made provision where broken fellowship can be restored. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so now, Lord, we just ask that you would have your way at Sugarland Bible Church. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, come on in, everybody. The water's fine. We've got a good global cooling going on in here as compared to out there. If you could take your Bibles and open them to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1 and verse 10. Here in our Sunday school hour, we're continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. This book was written right after 1 Thessalonians. See the heavy stuff we cover in Sunday school? (laughs) Uh, Both books written by Paul to the Thessalonian church that he planted. He wrote to them on the same missionary journey uh, that he planted the church uh, during. They were just babes in Christ. He wrote to them probably about six months to a year after he had planted the churches. He wrote from Corinth, A.D. 51, uh, the first letter he wrote because they had heard him talk about the rapture, and yet people had died, and so they wanted to know, uh, are deceased loved ones in Christ going to participate in this thing you told us about called the rapture? And he deals with that in 1 Thessalonians. And then in 2 Thessalonians, um, they got a forged uh, Facebook message. Let's put it that way. You know, sometimes um, your account gets hacked. Does that ever happen to anybody? And they send out some email in your name and it's obvious you didn't write it. So that's that's happened a couple times here at Sugarland Bible Church. An email goes out to you, signed from me, asking you for money. So if that happens, that probably isn't me. I don't think I would have ever done that, or would ever do it. And everybody kind of panics, and they call the office, and everybody's kind of thrown into this state of confusion. That's sort of what happened in Thessalonica. They received a false correspondence of some kind, allegedly coming from Paul. And you see it right there in Second 2 Thessalonians 2.2, 2, the next chapter over. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he's basically writing this book to explain to them that they are not in the day of the Lord. And what he had told them earlier was right, that they would escape the day of the Lord via the rapture. But because they thought they were in the day of the Lord um, seven years or less until Jesus touches down on, on planet Earth, they thought, so they started to quit their jobs and... Uh, they weren't really taking care of life's responsibilities. Because why hold down a job? I mean, Jesus is coming back. So he writes this book to correct that problem. The book has three parts. I'll give those three parts to you in just a second. But it's the proper balance between doctrine and practice. Between working and waiting for the Lord. You know, the idea that yes, Jesus can come in the next split second. But when you use that belief as an excuse to not take care of basic life's responsibilities, I'm not going to pay my rent. I'm not going to pay my mortgage. You know, I'm not going to save for retirement. uh, I'm not going to save money to put my kids through college because Jesus is coming back. Once you start moving in that direction, it's a crossing of the line, and you now have not just bad doctrine, but bad practice. So here in chapter one, he's commending them for their growth. Chapter two, he's going to correct their bad doctrine. He's going to, he's going to try to undo the damage that they picked up through this forgery. And then in chapter three, uh, it's easy to memorize this outline just the letter C times three he's going to deal with the consequences of their bad doctrine. So chapter 1, commendation. Chapter 2, correction. Chapter 3, dealing with the consequences or the fallout. So we're in that section of 2 Thessalonians where he's commending them for their growth. And it's kind of interesting that before he corrects them, he commends them. So there's a lot of good things happening in Thessalonica in spite of some of the bad that he's going to start talking about. So here in chapter 1, he's commending them. He reminds them of grace. They're standing before the Lord in grace. Verses 1 and 2, he expresses thanksgiving for them. Verses 3 through 4, he tells them to act according to their kingdom identity. Verse 5, He doesn't say there we're in the kingdom because you're not going to have bad email situations in the kingdom. Amen? There's not going to be any more misinformation or disinformation. He tells them the kingdom is future, but at the same time, he says you're going to inherit that kingdom, so you need to represent kingdom values on Satan's soil, and that's why you're being persecuted in verse 5. He tells them in verses 6 through 9 not to get overly discouraged about their persecutors. The unbelieving Jews are persecuting them. And that's where Paul explains, don't worry about that. God is going to deal with unbelievers in the end time. Verses 6 through 9. And in fact, it's in that section he starts to describe the second advent, not the rapture. Verse seven, verse eight, Second Advent, and he describes what God is going to do to these unsaved people. He's going to bring violent judgment against them. so that section reminds me an awful lot of what John the Baptist said in john three thirty six uh, He who believes in the Son has life, um, but he who does not obey the Son does not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. So that's a different way of looking at those that persecute us. You start to look at them through that lens and you start to feel sorry for them instead of being angry at them. So he deals with that in verses 6 through 9 and then you get to verse 10 and he contrasts their fate, the fate of the wicked, with our fate, the fate of the believer. And so I entitled this um, lesson, Kiss the Sun," and "Sun" there is not S-U-N, don't worry, it's S-O-N. Um, and you'll see exactly where I'm getting that from as we proceed from verse 10, hopefully to verse 12 today. But notice how different the fate of the believer is in comparison to the unsaved. And take a look if you could at verse 10. He says, When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So kind of looking at verse 10 and taking it apart verse by uh, piece by piece there, He says in verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. And he's talking about the fact that when God, Jesus Christ, imposes judgment on unbelievers, when Jesus returns, he is going to be in a state of glorification. And those that are coming back with him, which I think is us, because we're raptured, we're in the Father's house for seven years. Jesus and Paul both said that where Jesus goes at that point, we go. He's coming back to the earth. And as he comes back to the earth, he's in a state of glorification. Um, it's, it's different than what the disciples saw back in about, what, A.D. 30 to 33, when they were with Jesus. Um, what John saw about 60 years later on the island of Patmos, where John described the glorified Christ, Revelation chapter 1. When John saw that, and keep in mind, John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. John is the one that leaned against the chest of Christ in the upper room. I mean, if you talk about best friends, it would be Jesus and John. But 60 years later, when John was marooned by Domitian on the island of Patmos at the end of the first century, John is about 90 years old, and he starts to describe a portrait of Jesus that he saw Jesus in his glorified state. And when John saw this, he was shaken to the absolute core of his being. He uh, fell down as if he was dead. And had Jesus not touched him and gave him courage in the midst of that, uh, John would have just... I don't know what would have happened to John. He wouldn't have been in much of a condition to write the book of Revelation. And so when Jesus comes back, that's how he's going to be. He's not going to be a sidekick of... Allah, the way Muslims teach it, he is, and you see it all in Revelation 19, he's going to be the king of kings, the lord of lords, the armies of the earth are going to be gathered against him and he's going to speak, Uh, that's why it talks about a sharp sword protruding from his mouth, he's going to speak and they're going to die instantly. Some uh, Bible teachers say he's going to say, drop dead. (laughs) And all of these people that oppose him are just dead in an instant. And it's kind of interesting that when you read Revelation 19, there's not even a battle. It's kind of anticlimactic, climactic in that sense. And that's what Jesus is like when he comes back. And that's how we're going to be. We will be in a glorified state as well. Colossians chapter three verse four says, "When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory." So it's like um, at the end of a wedding ceremony, I now pronounce to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-So. It's public. The the world is supposed to see it. There's a public pronouncement. And that's the kind of situation we have when Jesus comes back at his second advent to judge unbelievers. He's coming back in glory. And you look a little more carefully at verse 10. and It says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. And then it says, on that day. Now what specific day would that be? That would be the day of the second coming. The rapture of the church on the left hand side of the column has already transpired, and now what we're dealing with is the second advent. He's not coming in the air, but this time he's coming to the earth. He's not coming for his saints, but this time he is coming with his saints. The rapture is a blessing. The second coming is a judgment. The rapture only affects believers, but the second coming will affect believers and unbelievers. There will be believers on the earth that will be spared. There will be unbelievers on the earth that will be killed immediately or sent into Hades. The rapture is something that is sort of, I don't know if this is the best choice of words, it's invisible in the sense that it only concerns the church-age believer, but the second coming, every eye will see him. It's visible to all. The rapture is announced by an archangel, but the second coming, he's coming back with myriads of angels. The rapture is a resurrection um, that's that takes place immediately with it, not so much the second coming. There is a resurrection, but it's not immediate the way it is with the rapture. The rapture is a rescue operation for the church. The second coming is a rescue operation for believing Israel at the end of the tribulation period. And we know that we're dealing here with the second advent just by looking at the surrounding context. If you go back to verse 7, It says, to give relief to you who are afflicted. In other words, even even us in heaven receive relief at this point because Satan is being deposed finally. Justice is being done. To give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's a second Advent context. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is going to take place on that day. On what day? Far right-hand side of the screen, the day of the second Advent. And as I mentioned before, as he's returning, he's coming back with his glorified ones. Where do we see that in the Bible? We see it in Jude verse 14, which says it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. In other words, Enoch, prior to the flood, made a prophecy It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. When you look at Revelation 19, verse 14, describing the second advent of Christ, it says, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who is this talking about? To some extent, it could be talking about angels. Because we know that when Jesus comes back, He's coming back with myriads of angels. Matthew 25, verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So the the glorious ones, the heavenly ones, probably is a reference to angels. But when it starts talking about the armies, plural, of heaven, I don't think it's just talking about the angels. I think it's talking about the church, the previously raptured church. And we're returning with Jesus to rule and reign under his uh, delegated authority. And so what's happening in your life right now is preparatory for that role that you will exercise in the kingdom age uh, when these events take place. We talk frequently in this church about the three tenses of salvation. Justification, the past tense of salvation, we're freed from sin's penalty at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. Then there's the growth stage of salvation. We're, we're gradually being delivered from sin's power, hopefully. We're not sinless, but hopefully we're sinning less. Amen. As we're learning about the resources that we have in Christ and gradually what's happening is our lives are being in daily life transformed into the image of his son. But then as there's the point of the rapture or death, whichever comes first, which is the present tense of uh, excuse me, future tense of salvation, where we will be delivered from sin's presence itself. I will be in a body that's resurrected that doesn't even have a sin nature. I won't even have the ability to sin. Right now I have the ability to sin. I know that's a big shock to you out there. Uh, and, and you guys, I'm looking at how spiritual you look. I'm not sure if you have that same ability that I have. Does anybody have the ability to sin today? All right, the ones that didn't put their hand up are sinning also because they're <laughs> they're bearing false witness. Um, but think of glorification when you don't even have a sin nature To retreat to. Right now, uh, as I'm learning about my resources in Christ, I'm learning that my sin nature has been deactivated, but it hasn't been disabled. (laughs) Um, I have power to tell it no, but it's still there to tempt me. And so growth in the middle tense of our salvation is learning through God's resources and the walk of faith and obedience to say no to the yearnings of the sin nature. Glorification is completely different. There's not even a sin nature to go back to. So we are returning with Jesus. He is fully glorified, just like John saw him on the island of Patmos. And there's us, the armies of heaven, coming with him to rule and reign over planet Earth. And so the progress that we're making today in the middle tense of our salvation as Christians is preparing us For that future kingly role. Just like everything that happened to Joseph. From age 17 to 30. A lot of unfair treatment. Was preparing him for the day. That he would be second in command. Over all of Egypt. So the time in history is coming. Where you're going to be second in command. Over the whole world. Jesus of course. Being uh, ruling unilaterally in that kingdom age, and we're functioning under his delegated authority. And that's when God is going to deal with all of these unbelievers that are opposing the church today. And that's why Paul says, don't lose a lot of sleep over these unbelievers because of how unfair you're being treated. Believe me, the day of retribution is going to come if they don't get right with God. Now, my friend Don Perkins, who we had at our prophecy conference, um, uh what was it, last year? Or earlier this year, makes a big deal about Revelation chapter 19 verse 12 or verse 14 when it says, The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Don Perkins takes that so seriously that he already has his horse Named. Um, so I'll just kind of submit that to you. I think it's going to be shocking how literally these things are going to be fulfilled. So, there in verse 10, you see that when he comes to be glorified in his saints, and that's going to happen on that day. It goes on and it says, and to be marveled at. I mean, Jesus is going to be the cat's meow. He's going to be the the focus through the Shekinah glory of God over the whole earth. Very, very different than the first coming. In the first coming, Isaiah fifty three verse three predicts he was despised. He was forsaken of men. You know he he was spit upon. Uh, The only crown that he ever received was a crown of thorns out of mockery. And they they gambled for his clothing and they, they treated him in just a horrific way. And as you look at how he interacted with the earth in his first coming, you see a person that's constantly being despised. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 predicts this. It says then, after 62 weeks, in other words, after we get to Palm Sunday, Daniel makes a prediction. The Messiah will be cut off. That's his crucifixion. The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. He will inherit nothing. He was supposed to get the kingdom, but the covenanted nation rejected him. They said, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so Jesus never received his kingdom in his first coming because he wasn't coronated as king by God's elect nation, the nation of Israel. In fact, things were so bad that at his birth, there was really no place for him in terms of accommodations. It says in Luke chapter two, verse seven, she gave birth to her firstborn son, that would be Mary and Jesus, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger. And uh, I've been to the Bethlehem manger, or what a Bethlehem manger looked like in Bethlehem, and it's absolutely nothing like what you see on the Christmas cards. It's like um, it's one of the most humble. Things you can think of it's almost like a a cave uh, an area there kind of hewn out of rock and that's that's where they had to take jesus the baby jesus she gave birth to her firstborn son she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn no accommodations for you son of god Just like today, sadly, there's no room for Jesus in the human heart. People push Jesus away and out constantly. I mean, this was something that happened to him in his first coming. Over in uh, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, it says this, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the, the animal kingdom has better accommodations than I have. So he was, just like Isaiah said would happen, he was despised in his first coming. That's why when you read verse 10, it's such a big deal because he's no longer despised. He's no longer rejected. He no longer is crowned with a crown of thorns out of mockery. He's crowned with many crowns or many diadems. And it says on that day, what day are we talking about? The day of the second advent. At the end of the tribulation period, when national Israel receives their Messiah and he returns to the earth to save them from Satan and the Antichrist, and he returns with us, his saints, and he speaks. And the, the armies of the earth are overthrown instantaneously. On that day, he's going to be marveled at. You know, Joseph, if you look at the first um, age, what, age 17 to age 30, roughly, rejected. But once he gets into second in command, oh, wow, that's a big deal. The, even his own family was marveling. At Joseph that's a type of what is going to happen with Jesus it's it's uh, and because we're connected with Jesus that's a type of what's going to happen to us because we're on the right side of history right now following in Christ's pattern we're largely despised forsaken thought of as a little odd we don't really fit in here with this world system But how different it is when the kingdom is established. Uh, The the peoples of the earth are, are marveling at Jesus. Something that they didn't do in the first coming. So that raises a really important question. How do you get on the right side of Jesus? You see that there at the end of verse 10. It says, Among all, these would be the saints, who have... Believed. Pretty simple, right? For our testimony to you was believed. I mean, how do you get right with God? We talked about the three tenses of salvation earlier, but the first tense is the most significant because that determines your eternal destiny. How are we justified or made right with God? It, It says it right there in verse 10 two times. You believe meaning you trust in the one that he has sent. Uh, Lewis Barry Chafer said, because upwards of 150 passages of Scripture condition salvation upon believing only. And he lists there some of the classic ones that you know. You know Genesis 15 verse 6. This is how Abram was justified before God. Then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. I mean, that's simple. That's not complicated at all. We know John 3.16, right? And just look at John 3.16 and ask yourself, how many verbs do you have to fulfill to be justified before God? And when I'm talking about belief, it's more than just intellectual assent. It's the idea of trust. You're trusting Jesus for your eternity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever what believes in Him, very simple, shall not perish but have eternal life. Another famous and there's there's a there's a there's 150 probably 160 passages. In the Bible, and they all read just this way. In fact, when you, when you stop listening to people, when you turn out, when you turn off evangelical media, and just do your own Bible study, you, you'll see how simple God has made this. In fact, you'll say, this is so simple, how did we mess it up so bad? Acts 16, verse 30 and 31, this is the Philippian jailer, asked life's most important question. They're not a more important question to ask than the one that was asked of Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, it does go on there and it says you and your household and i think the presumption is that once the philippian jailer gets saved he's gonna it's not like his household got immediately saved at that point but the implication is he's the leader of the house he's gonna share the good news with his household his wife his kids family members etc and they're gonna believe and be saved but it's um it's it's very very non complicated and so this is how you pay homage to the sun now and get on the right side of history. Where am I getting this idea of kiss the sun? Do homage to the sun. It's in Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the sun. Now some of your English translations may say kiss the sun. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For the wrath, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. How do you take refuge in Him? You pay homage to Him now. How do you pay homage to Him now? You fulfill the condition of faith alone in Christ alone. Which justifies you before a holy God. Now all these other people that are attacking the church, you know, the presumption is they're not doing that, they're not gonna do it, even though they have an opportunity to do it. And if a person has never kissed the sun or paid homage to the sun, <clears throat> then they really have very little to look forward to, other than the fiery indignation of God himself which will be fully vented when he comes back with his angels in blazing fire in uh, in glorification um i tried to clear up i think it was last time the confusion about verse 8 it says dealing out retribution to those who do not know god and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the works salvationist takes the word obey and they front load it with a bunch of do's and don'ts. You want to be justified before God? Well, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do mindset. But what's interesting is verse 8, obey is defined in verse 10. I mean, what you have to do is very clear in verse 10. second part of verse 10 is to believe. So when he says obey, what he's saying is fulfill the condition of grace that God has set up to be justified. And that condition is faith alone in Christ alone. John 3.36 that I read a little earlier says the same thing. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. How do you define that word obey? You define it by the word that comes before it, which is to believe. So our personal obedience to God, if you're defining it as something other than trusting in God, I mean, if you think that your personal obedience to God other than faith alone is what justifies you, if you think that, then you need to think really hard about whether you're a believer or a Christian at all. Because all you've done is recycled works righteousness. Yeah, but pastor, you know, when you talk like this, you're making it sound like obedience to God isn't a big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. But it's a big deal in the second tense of your salvation, after justification has already been executed. Because if you won't obey God, you can't grow as a Christian. And you can't be fully rewarded at the Bema Seat Judgment the way God wants to reward you. But that's not a condition for justification. That's a condition for growth. That's not a condition for birth. That's a condition for growth. And there's a big difference between birth and growth. People are born into the world all of the time. And yet because of bad nutrition or bad hygiene or, you know, not being taught, you know, social skills properly or whatever, it's obvious that when you look at them that they're not really growing the way they should. They're not developing the way they should. But if someone is not developing the way they should, that doesn't erase the fact that they're born. I mean, they're born. Uh, Birth is one thing. Growth is something different. And so when you talk about obedience to the commands of God, other than faith alone, those are conditions for development in Christ, not coming to Christ the Uh, via faith alone. It's like in the world of medicine, you know, you have obstetricians, if I'm pronouncing that right, that help with the birthing process. And then later on, after a child is born, he established, the parents anyway, established a relationship with a pediatrician that helps the child to grow. And it's kind of interesting that when you talk to doctors, I've never met one that does both because they're totally different disciplines. The obstetrician is the evangelist, the person with the gift of evangelism that leads people to Christ. The pediatrician, which is more um, my ministry calling, it's to help those that are already regenerated develop the way they should. That's the gift of pastor-teacher. Pastor-teacher is different than the evangelist. Now, it's very rare to find somebody that has both gifts. There are those out there. I certainly don't have the gift of evangelism. We're called to evangelize, but that doesn't mean I'm particularly gifted at it. I mean, my gifting is more in the area of helping the newborn child of God, you know, mature correctly, grow correctly through a proper teaching of God's word. So these are categories that you have to make distinct distinctions on. And if you don't make these basic distinctions, you're going to start running everything together. And if you start running everything together, if you start combining what God wants separate. Then you're going to start teaching a false gospel. And you're going to make it sound as if getting saved involves doing steps A, B, C, D, E, and F, and G, and H, and I, and J, and K, uh, etc. So hopefully that clears that up a little bit. So we have the reminder in grace. We have Paul's thanksgiving for them, uh, verses 3 and 4. You have Paul telling them to function according to their kingdom values, verse 5. You have a description of the destiny of their persecutors, verses 6 through 9. You have a description of how our fate is going to be very different, verse 10. And then he sort of concludes this chapter by praying for their continued progress. So look at verse 11. Paul says, To this end... We pray for you always. He doesn't say we pray for you when it's convenient. We pray for you when you feel like it. He says we pray for you always. And that goes back to what he said in the first letter, remember? First Thessalonians 5 verse 17, remember what he said? Pray without ceasing, yeah. And then as you look at verse 8, he says, To this end we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Now what, what does he mean here when he says worthiness of your calling? What calling is he talking about? Well, he's going back to verse 5. Remember what he said in verse 5? This is a plain indication of God's righteousness and judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom For which indeed you are suffering. So, when we were in verse 5, we were explaining that the kingdom is yet future. We're not going to see the kingdom coming to the earth until Jesus touches down on planet earth and establishes the thousand year kingdom. But in the interim, what exactly are we doing? We're representing kingdom values on enemy soil. Make no mistake about it, the devil, until the kingdom age starts, is running this world. The New Testament, over and over again, calls Satan by various names indicating his authority over planet Earth. Satan is called the prince of this world. Three times in John's gospel, John 12:31, John 14:30, John 16 verse 11. He's called the God of this age, second Corinthians chapter four verse four. He's called the Prince and power of the air, Ephesians four verse two. Um, he is the one that the believer wrestles with. Have you been in a wrestling match? I was a little too tall for wrestling, but I watched those guys on the wrestling match just slugging it out. Not slugging it out, that would be boxing, I guess. But they're working so hard to get the upper hand and this contention, you know, goes on and on. That's sort of the struggle that we're in right now with the devil. That's why we have to put on the full armor of God. Peter describes Satan as a a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour and then John says in 1st John chapter 5 verse 19 the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one and as much as i would like for things to be different they're not going to be different this this scenario will continue until Jesus returns at the end of the 7 year tribulation period and deposes the devil in the interim, who are we exactly? We are heirs of the coming kingdom. We are sons of the coming kingdom. Paul, in second Corinthians chapter five and verse 20, describes our role in this world as ambassadors. And so you ask yourself, well, what does an ambassador do? An ambassador is not there for regime change. If I am America's ambassador to Iran, I'm not there to overthrow Iran and the government. I'm there to represent American soil or American values on Iranian soil. That's our role. And because we're in that role representing kingdom values as ambassadors, We represent a value system of the coming kingdom. The calling that we currently have in the world is we sort of stand out. That's why we're called lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We don't really fit in well. We are, just as Jesus experienced in his first coming, we're we're forsaken to some extent, despised. So when that type of opposition comes against you, as a Christian, you just say, Well, praise the Lord. I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm representing kingdom values in the devil's world. And that's our that's our calling. So that's why he says verse eleven, to this end we pray for you always that our God would count you worthy of your calling. What is that calling? The calling of the Christian is to be salt and light in Satan's world. In a value system that is totally hostile to the value system of Jesus. If you want a biblical explanation of the value system that we're currently under in the devil's world, look no further than 1 John 2. Verses 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. you, You can't love the world and love God simultaneously. If you're a Christian doing that, you're quenching the Spirit of God within you. Because the value system of the world... The cosmos and the value system of God are polar opposites. And as long as Satan is running the show, we're marching to a, the world system is marching to a drum that is not God's system. And things won't change until the kingdom comes. Once the kingdom comes, you'll no longer be a, just a citizen of the coming kingdom. You'll be a full participant. And then the warfare ends. The warfare doesn't end until the kingdom is established. Now, as for me and my house, we're ready for the warfare to end. Amen? That's why we're to pray, thy kingdom come. But until the kingdom comes, the warfare continues. Because we're God's people in the devil's world. The devil's world operating by a foreign value system. Your value system as a citizen of the coming kingdom, God's value system. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the cosmos, in other words, the philosophy of the day. The Greek word for world here is cosmos, where we get the name cosmopolitan. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, The boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now look at this. The world is passing away. And also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The world is passing away. Its, its duration is limited. I'm not too much of a fan of things on social media, but there is an interesting thing that people do with the, the 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 used to be television stars of let's say the 1980s. All the beautiful people, and and they look good, believe me. But then they tell you, they show you what those people, if they're still alive, what they look like today. It's like, wow, talk about fading glory. Uh, and I, I think of that when I think about this verse, the world is passing away. And yet in the 1980s, you look at these stars and starlets, you know, they're the talk of the town. You know, now they're pushing the grave, um, moving towards the uh, ash heap, so to speak. They're obviously in a state of decay. It's like, what in the world happened to them? And they're, they were showcased in a world that's passing. That's why we're not to fall in love with the world or the television stars in the 1980s, although at the time it was easy to try to imitate them, emulate them, be like them. And they're, they're just fading glory when you look at the big picture. So that's who we are. I don't like this world system. I really don't. I wish the Lord would come and get the show on the road. I pray all of the time, thy kingdom come. I don't like opposition all of the time. But as I experience opposition as a Christian, representing God's values in Satan's world, I'm walking in my calling. This is what I'm called to do in the present age. So he says, to this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. That's your calling. And then he says, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I had a youth pastor that put it this way. God doesn't necessarily give you everything you want, but he sure knows how to control the wanter. He knows how to change the desires of a person's heart so that when we're praying for things that we desire, they're actually God's desires that he put inside of us. Isn't God good in that way? I'm glad that God has not given me everything I've asked him for because a lot of the things I've asked him for would probably destroy me several times over. But I have noticed that I've walked with the Lord and tried to delight myself in the things of God that the things that I once desired have passed away and he's replaced them with new desires, better desires, holy desires, godly desires. And so when I pray for the Lord to fulfill those desires, I start to notice that he answers a lot quicker because those are really not my desires. Those are desires he put inside of me. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Notice the verse doesn't say, he will give you the desires of your heart, and it doesn't start that way. There's a condition that has to be met. The condition is, Delight yourself in the Lord. Well, how do you delight yourself in the Lord? You give yourself to the things of God. Prayer, the Word, fellowship with God's people. You know, the things that God says are a high priority. Delight yourself in the Lord. And as you delight yourself in the Lord in the middle tense of your salvation, learning the walk of faith, representing God's values on enemy soil, what you'll start to see is God will start to alter what you want. He's not giving you everything you want, but he's controlling the wanter. And as we fulfill that condition, delighting ourselves in the Lord, he begins to give us the desires of our heart. I mean, God could have been really mean about this and made it look like any desire of our heart that we pray for we can't have. God is not that way. He just says, I've got better desires for you. I've got desires for you that are eternal, but you can't tap into these new desires until you delight yourself in me. That's the condition. So this is why Paul, verse 11, says, To this end we also pray that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire. What desires? For more money and power. Whoops, doesn't say that. For goodness, that's what it says. And the work of faith with power. Well, how in the world will I have a desire in my heart for goodness and the work of faith with power? The answer is I'm delighting myself in the Lord, and those subjects are important to God. And so God has changed my heart where I desire those things. And as I start to pray for those things, God says, all right, we're on the same page now. Because the Bible says, ask according to his will and you'll receive, right? We're on the same page now, I can start answering more. Lord, I don't know why, but I've been walking with you for a while. I have a desire to be good. I have a desire for goodness. Well, who who, who gave us that desire? That's, that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit generates these. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What's that next one, Pat? Because I always forget it and you... You nicely correct me on that. Goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. Why? Well, I, I don't I don't I don't want to do this stuff. Well, God says, Well, you don't want to do it because you're not delighting yourself in me. Start delighting yourself in me, and then you'll wake up one day saying, You know, I want to be good. I want faith. I want self control. Because these are called the fruit of the Spirit. They're God-induced desires. What other desire does Paul want to see created in the Thessalonians? And the work of faith. It all starts with faith, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is possible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, Second Peter 1: five through7 is laying out the criteria of mature Christianity. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. It kind of builds up like a staircase. And notice what's at the bottom of the staircase. Where does it all start? It starts with faith. So that's why Paul says, I'm praying that God would give you the desire of your heart, which is faith. And then just sort of wrapping up here with verse 11, he says, with power. Because <laughs> no self-help course is going to give you these. No Goodyear, Goodyear, uh, New Year rather, Goodyear is the tire company. No New Year's resolution is going to give you these. No amount of work you put your flesh through to make it try harder is going to give you these. They're, they're, they're things that are supernatural. And they're supernatural because it's the work of the Spirit inside of you. And that's why it's called power. Uh, As you probably know, the Greek word for power is dunamis, where we get the word um, dynamic, dynamite. Wasn't it JJ on one of those shows that always say dynamite, something like that? Uh, He's one of those 80s guys I was referring to, I guess. But... um, like the show, but whatever the show was, it was I enjoyed it, but now there's going to be people out there that are going to pull up a bunch of bad stuff and say, "Oh, Woods is apostate all right okay. so you got to be careful what you say when you're up here, but you'll notice that these things come about through power and and the power exists because it's the Holy Spirit doing them. And I think we'll stop here. I wanted to get to verse 12, but we can't do it because verse 12 is talking about the purpose of our lives. Why are we here? Why did God create us? Why did God redeem us? Well, there's an actual answer to that. It's in verse 12, so we'll look at that next time. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this book of 2 Thessalonians, how it keeps us on the proper path of growth in you. And I just pray you'll be with us in the main service as we worship you and continue through the book of Genesis as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said. Happy intermission.